Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is brought to you by ROI Online. Most business leaders struggle with how to transition from traditional marketing into modern marketing. ROI Online has a team of experts that makes it easy. They help you make a plan, and then they do most of the heavy lifting to set you up for success. ROI can guide you to success at ROIOnline.com. Today's guest is Jesse Dean Story. I first encountered Jesse not in the real world, but as an Instagram account called Texas Wild. As a student at West Texas A&M University, Jesse teamed up with Dr. Ray Matlack, a wildlife biologist, to start photographing and filming the vast creatures of the Texas Panhandle. Now, the photos that she was able to come up with were stunning. The Instagram account is amazing. And it wasn't just cute images of foxes or bobcats, but of like tarantulas and snakes and bats. And occasionally there were videos of Jessie running through caves or jumping across creek beds so she could get a certain shot. Uh, those adventures ended up turning into a series of videos airing on PBS stations all over the state. Uh, so today, Jessie maintains the Texas Wild account but also works as a freelance wildlife documentarian. She's based in Amarillo, but she travels all over Texas for various projects. I was lucky enough to catch her between excursions, and we sat down to talk about her career, which is still evolving. So here's Jesse's story. Jesse's story, thanks for uh, being on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I want, to, I want to talk about all the different things you're involved in, from the video production to wildlife, biology, all that stuff. But Let's start, uh, if you don't mind, let's start at the beginning. Just kind of tell me your story, where you grew up, and, and how you got to this place. All right. Born and raised in Amarillo, Texas. And uh, when I uh, graduated high school, I was going to go outside of Amarillo. I, there was no way I was going to stay in Amarillo. And I had graduated top of my class, and I had a pretty nice scholarship to WT. And my uh, mother tried to get me to take it, and I refused. I was never going to WT. And um, I applied. I knew I wanted to do film, so I applied at Eastern New Mexico. And I applied for a private dorm and a job on campus, and I got accepted. And then about three weeks before I was supposed to show up in Port Talis, they called and said, um, we had a slight situation. We overbooked by like 5,000 students. Wow. You were welcome to come. We don't have a place for you. And the I job- thought only airlines did the overbooking <laughs> thing. I didn't no, know colleges no, did that. No, no, just, no. Just them that one time. And I had gotten the job on campus, but it wasn't enough to cover my costs for living on my own and, you know, taking 15 hours and all of that jazz. So I had turned down the scholarship to WT, and I enrolled at AC just to do my basics. And from there, I went to WT, and I could not have found a better place to have gone to college. I paid full price, uh, but that is how it goes. Um, I think had I not gone to WT, I would not have been where I am today with the opportunities I had or anything. Eastern New Mexico has an amazing film school. But at that time, the way I kind of fell into this couldn't have been better. I found myself kind of going to WT. Was was film what you wanted to do like all of your life? I mean, how did that develop? I had always thought, how cool would that be? But I really never thought about what I would make a movie on. And I always thought a movie or documentary had to be about people and like a hard hitting topic. And I never really questioned myself on where I stood on certain opinions or views of the world. Um, I had a professor, Dr. Cost, AEC, and his son, He, I was in painting. And, um, That's Steve Cost. Mm-hmm. And he kind of changed my life. 
his son had gone into the, um, after kind of special effects and movies and, um, he had helped him find a film school. And he told me one day, you should think about doing that. And that really made me go, okay, I'm going to do it. But I didn't have money for a camera or an idea that I would do. And then when I went to WT, I've met Ray, Dr. Matt, like everyone knows him as, and um, he was taking photos and I asked if I could do some. Well, I kind of smarted off and he gave me a go. And um, that's when I knew, okay, this makes sense to me. I know how I'm going to put the animal together. I know, or at least I think I know what people find intriguing about these animals. And then it clicked. And all from there, I just had to learn what I was doing because he didn't know, I didn't know, no one knew. We just knew that we were going to film wildlife. How did how did the the wildlife biology aspect enter into it? I mean, did, did you go to WT thinking this is a direction that, that I'm going to head? Yes. Okay. Once I finally settled on something, like I went to real estate, accounting, you won't believe all the things I did. Um, I settled on wildlife biology and um, it was something my mother knew from the get-go I should have already had done from the start. And um, I got started on that. Midway through, I started working with Ray. I picked up a camera. I started helping him. I told him that I could edit his videos better than he could, even though I had never edited a video. And he said, then put your money where your mouth is. And once I started doing that, I realized I had to figure out how to do things. I was halfway through my biology degree, and I started taking classes in communications. Randy Ray, he's kind of the wizard, wizard of Oz there. And I started learning from him. And so I have wildlife biology mixed with video editing, if you will. Which is pretty perfect for, yeah, for that what is pretty you perfect. ended up doing. Yeah, that is pretty perfect. So I, I first discovered your work, uh, I believe, on Instagram with the Texas yes. Wild account. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, you and Dr. Matlock were you know, going all over the state. You were filming the stuff that eventually became Texas Wild on yes. Handle PBS. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's been several years. So tell me, tell me about the process, the kinds of things that, that you did for people who haven't seen any of those. Well, Texas Wild started when he and I first got a camera. It wasn't really realized or recognized until we wrote a grant. And when I came in, that was my, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do the social media. I wanted to get the word out there. And that's when I started doing the Instagram, the Facebook, all of that. And we went out and filmed and it was just supposed to be for in class, for university, for students to use, to illustrate behaviors and species and all that jazz. And we started looking at it and I had started to do video and um, I said, I think we're really good. And he said, nah, I think we're good too. And so we put together a nine minute montage and we took it down. It raised I did to go to Panhandle PBS and we held them hostage in a room for nine minutes and we showed them, I think nine minutes of video. That's like, it was edited, but no audio except net audio, wind. It was terrible. And um, we said, we want to do a documentary. And they said, well, we think we could do more than that. So let's start small. We'll just do small segments. And as you get more video, if you can, we'll start patching together larger portions. So we started doing um, 16 one-minute interstitials on various species. And if you don't know about us, we kind of have a, um, a, a knack for the wildlife most people don't like. So when you think about wildlife, you think charismatic wildlife, bears, deers, you know, bobcats. I kind of like things like spiders and snakes and bats. And the important thing about these is even though they might give you the heebie-jeebies, they're like environmentally important and they're here and people need to know about them. So we did a kind of a montage of all that, a hodgepodge, if you will. 
And those 16 segments, uh, Ray and I found out like two years later, they were airing throughout Texas on all the PBS stations, and we had no clue. Hmm. We had some biologist friends. One lady, uh, Laura, called me from Port Rancis and was like, you're on the TV. And I was like, what? So... What, you'll, what you're going to see, if you can still see them on Panhandle, on um, PBS, um, on their YouTube channel, they're like certain species, and we just did the quintessential blue chip, roll the footage, do a voiceover over that. Right. Yeah. When you began doing that, was the focus on you know the, the smaller critters, the snakes? and Was that because of your fascination? Was that because he was into that? I mean, how did, how did yeah, you decide, our, let's do that? Honestly, our tastes overlap on okay. that. Okay, um, we were both two cool kids who kind of had a knack for the crazy wildlife. But what made the decision for this gets the pick or this does not get the pick was one, how good of footage do we have? Is a footy good? Number two, do people know about this? And anything from a jumping spider, we have an endangered fish. We have um, an endangered Houston toad. There's 300 left in the area. We filmed them. We thought, this is important. We need to let people know about this. And bats. We feel like a lot of species are underrepresented. Underrepresentative. Underrepresented. Well, underrepresented. Thank you. Yeah. Underrepresented. And we wanted to bring that to the forefront. And once we started doing that, we kind of looked back and we thought, how could we approach this differently? And that's kind of changed what we then started filming. So we started filming for longer segments. And we literally went out and just did for like three years, film, film, film. And then we'll edit when we're done. And we started thinking about if we were going to film bats, what do we want people to think about bats? What do they already think about bats? So I started doing research about perceptions and how children react to bats if they're exposed when they're younger, when they're not, and people and, you know, all of that jazz. And so we started thinking about how can we get people to view things differently? What is the result we want people to take away? Whether it's learning something, that's great. But for me, I want you to feel something different about the bats. So then you start seeing us on camera. We start filming each other handling these bats because I don't want people to just learn about them like Ray did. I want you to kind of challenge the way you feel about something. So that's what um, that kind of started as. You know, is it good footage? How much do we have? Is it an important species to tell people about? Did you have exposure to bats and snakes and stuff when you were a kid? I mean, was that... I think a yeah. lot of people have a natural aversion to animals like that. Was that something that you ever dealt with or were you and, just and always? See, I, I, can't, I can't fathom being scared of something like that because as a kid, I gravitated towards stuff like that. The last thing in the world I ever thought I would see was a bat. So when I was a little kid, I used to watch Steve Irwin and I used to watch Discovery Channel and I would go out in the backyard and I would try to recreate what they did, data sheets tagging the toad you know is it male or female i didn't know so i just called it you know steve Irwin made it okay to like the things that i liked he was very enthusiastic maybe he pushed the lines some people will argue argue but for me it was okay to be a girl and to like those things and that's what he taught me i never i never knew about bats growing up i had a bat book when i was little called stella luna that my mother used to read me but i never thought i saw would see a bat so my big my white whale was a great white shark. I was going to grow up, go to college, become a marine biologist, and I was going to film a shark. Done. Totally didn't go that way. When I started working for Ray, I did a lot of research projects, and I, one of them was on bats. And once I saw bats, I went crazy. And for me, that just became, if we can do bats, we should just film bats all the time. 
So for me, the animals I film, they were things I gravitated towards as a kid. And if you talk to Ray, you'll get stories from him the same way when he was growing up. It's so much so that it's hard for me to understand when someone doesn't like that or has a fear of it. And I have to think, okay, do people want to see bats? No, they might want to see a bobcat. And I have to make myself go out and actually film that, you know. I'm the opposite of most people. I think fear is taught. I think you can learn a healthy respect for something and not go around it. But to be afraid of it, I think you have to have a bad experience <laughs> or you had to be bit or, you know, just be taught that is dangerous. Don't go near it. Because when I was a kid, I would pick up anything. You couldn't stop me. I, I'm interested in in your desire to change behavior or to change those misconceptions. Because I, I do think that whether you want to divide it by gender and say a lot of girls feel this way or a lot of kids just in general have, you know, this aversion to creepy crawlies and spiders. Aside from education, and there's plenty of education, but how do you start to change that behavior with kids other than just walking around and saying, here, here's a tarantula, hold this? Well, um... I started thinking about behavior because I felt like there was something wrong with me. When I grew up, I noticed everyone was one way. I was the opposite. So I started to wonder, where did I go wrong? Why didn't I develop these like healthy respects for these animals or this fear? For the changing of behavior, it's been pointed out to me that with kids, one of the best ways you can do it is pick it up and show it to them. And they're not scared, especially for, for little girls. They see a woman doing it, then they're like, well, I was thinking about doing it. Well, she's doing it, so I'm totally going to do it now. Wide scale level, I think it's not education, but it's sharing of knowledge, sharing of experience. And with this generation, video, visual, that makes it, that makes it work. Look at Steve Irwin, you look at Attenborough, these people go out there, they do it, they get near it, even if they don't touch it, they they tell you about it, but they're so excited, you kind of maybe can get a glimpse about why they feel that way. It's not that terrifying, or well, he really enjoys it, and even if you don't make an effect on change, at least you have someone's attention for a little bit, and they're going to be aware of that species. So it's entertaining at that point. I don't think you should go out and like, force an animal to bite you, okay? But I think it's a good thing to take these animals and get them up close to people. Because when you talk about an animal you never encountered, if you're not an outdoorsy person, an animal fanatic, you really are terrified. You don't know how it's gonna react, how you should react to that. And so when you show people, no, see, look, you can do this, it's completely fine. I used to do um, a lot of educational little um, classes for students. I would go Tascosa or River Road, and I would take these animals, and I would show these animals to these kids, or I would show footage, and that changed the way kids felt. A lot of kids, they just want to hold it. They want to interact with it, even if they're scared of it. And that makes a difference for them. They may not still like it. I had girls tell me, I don't like the snake even though they're holding it. I don't like the snake. That's fine. You don't have to like the snake. But before you walked in the room, you wouldn't even hold the snake. Now I got you holding a snake. I think it makes a difference. I think the biggest thing you do is watch what you say. Snakes don't chase you. But I think that's where it starts with your behavior and your sharing of experiences. To this point, your, your career, whether it's Texas Wild or, or some of the other projects you've been involved with, has been pretty focused on Texas as a yes, state. I mean, yes. Talk to me about the the wildlife in Texas, in this state. I, I know a lot of people when they think, well, you know, wildlife photography or, or videos, they're thinking of African savanna right. and stuff like that. Or if it's in the United States and they think of bigger animals like bears or yeah, absolutely. elk, or, and that's not Texas. So talk to me about the, the animals here and, and why why you think they're so uh, photographable, I guess is the, the word for it. Um, 
being from Texas, I got the Texas pride. So automatically Texas is the best. Okay. Um, Texas is more suited on a personal level for my photography taste. Now that doesn't always get me jobs. That doesn't always get me likes or get me paid, but it brings me enjoyment. We do have a wide spanning uh, wildlife. And I think for the large public, you want those charismatics, you want the bear, you want the deer that, that grabs people, the wolves that grabs people in Texas though, is very eclectic and working with Ray and in the wildlife biology department, you find out things and then you can't ignore those facts. We got more bats than any other state. That's something to be proud of. Texas is a big, and we have a lot of big wildlife. We have the largest bat colony in the world here. We have bison. Um, I'm working on a project with the Texas State Bison Herd down in Caprock right now. Those are the descendants of the Goodnight Ranch. Those are iconic. You can't find them anywhere else. Um, we've got armadillos. They're not native, but they're certainly claimed by Texas. And that's something very interesting. When you learn about kind of the natural history of these animals, they may not have originated in Texas, but we have claimed them as ours. And that's kind of like a point of pride for me. We've got rattlesnakes. You um, you think Texas is one thing, and then you go to other parts of Texas and you see, wow, there's really this crazy, rich diversity of species. We've got alligators. We've got endangered Houston toads. We've got birds, beautiful, beautiful birds that we have. I'm not good at birds, so you know I don't really photograph those. But um, we have a huge tourism for birds here in the state that brings in a lot of people. That's what got me hooked on Texas is it's here and so many people know about it. Just recently, I filmed mountain lions. I never thought I would see a mountain lion, let alone film it. And what's interesting about that is the people who live, you know, on ranches and stuff, they know they're there. They see them a lot of times. And then you talk to folks who don't live on ranches and they go, oh, I hear we have them, but I don't really think we do. And so to me, it's interesting. It's this large state and some things everyone knows we have and other things we have you can't throw a stone without seeing one, and yet no one is aware of it. So I like that kind of um, discrepancy there, I guess. And we have the numbers, but we don't have the witnesses, or we have the witnesses and we don't have the numbers. So to me, it's kind of interesting to go out and film that, throw it out there and see the reactions of people say, oh yeah, we've got those. And when you see people claim that wildlife, you see them claim it like, hey, I have one that comes to my back door and it makes my day when it comes to my back door. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I like too, is, is that basic pride of having this these wildlife species in your town, in your state. Talk to me about this area for filming, for the photography. I mean, I know you've been all over the state. You've been to the El Paso area, you know, Big Bend area, the coast. I mean, what, what do you like about filming around here? Well, it's flat. Uh, it's very it's very flat. Um, what I like about filming here is people don't think there's a lot here. And sometimes I have to, I'm one of those people, I have to remind myself, okay, there's stuff here. We have, um, we have canyons tucked away in a lot of places. We have lakes, which provide you with numerous species that come to the lakes. Urban wildlife-wise, we're pretty thick here with foxes and whatnot. The panhandle, to me, is always left out. When people think about Texas, we're lumped in with West Texas. And so you have El Paso and you have Big Ben and you have the birds and the, you know, the herps that you get down there. And people forget we have pronghorn up here. We have a lot. And I think for me, the challenge of filming up here is to go out and find those things. It's easy to say, hey, we got pronghorn here. Go out and film it. Show people that we get those. Because people leave out the panhandle and they kind of think about it as Amarillo, 
is in the panhandle and the, oh yeah, there's that Lubbock place. And then that's kind of how they, mm-hmm. they visualize it. Caprock Canyons is two hours away from here. You got prairie dogs. There is actually a lot here. You just got to know where to go. And I think that's one of the challenges is knowing where to go. I want to talk a little bit about your actual filming process. I, if, if I point people toward, let's say your Instagram page, um, they'll see videos or photos of animals that are very, very close. I mean, it feels like you're right there with a fox or a spider coming, you know, out of a hole or a snake or something like that. And and there are things like like most of my uh, interactions with animals involve me seeing something and them seeing me and taking off. So it's like <laughs> only this really brief glimpse of something. I feel oh that's great. And then you've you, you filmed them for what seems like minutes and minutes. And I, I just I wonder how you do that. How do how do you set up? to be there at the right time, to be recording at the right time, all that okay, stuff. Okay, it's a little bit of both. And most of the stuff I see bolts. Um, and usually the stuff that bolts are the things that people want to see, like the bobcat. I just filmed a bobcat, I think, last weekend, photographed it in Paladuro, and I saw it. It saw me. I stopped breathing for a minute, and I was like, bobcat! And it ran into the bush. Well, it didn't run. It kind of sashayed into the bushes. And I rattled off two shots. I could see its feet, but I didn't know where it was. I got lucky and managed to get it dead on the eye. How far away were you from it? 20 yards, 30 yards. Yeah. When it comes to filming, it's being prepared. A lot of the stuff I get is on the fly. I don't know it's there. I don't know it's going to be there. I just have everything ready. So, for example, before a storm... I know if it's in the summer, we're going to get herps, you know, reptiles and amphibians. We're going to get them moving. So I'm going to have my macro ready. I'm going to have my headlamp ready. Ray always, you know, taught me that. And I'm going to be cruising. I'm going to be walking. If I'm not in a truck, walking around, I'm going to be looking. Things move when a storm starts to come in. Listen for calls. And when you get a call, like a frog call, you stay in that area and you keep listening. I've stood in places for two hours trying to find a toad that's the size of my thumb. Like you've just set up and you're waiting for something to cross mm-hmm. your path? Yes, or to- like if you get to a body of water, you can hear the narrow mouth toad calling. You just don't know where it's at. So I will literally wait in that water for two hours, waiting for it to call and be like, okay, things over to the right. Other times, um, you know, in like an open grasslands that we I've traveled to and Ray and I traveled to once, we spent two areas camping. We just lay down, sleep on the ground. And what I do is I walk around that area, a huge radius, and I look at burrows and I see if that burrow looks like it's been disturbed. And I look at it three times, four times, eight times a day. And then I found out there's a tarantula in it. So at night we put on the lights, we film it. Then you start waiting. Another three days go by and you start seeing tarantula hawks flying. Okay, now we got the tarantula hawk. There could be a chance of it predating the tarantula. Well, we waited a week, had cameras ready to go, Boom, she, the tarantula hawk dug up my favorite tarantula and killed it. We got it on footage. Hmm. So a lot of it is waiting. Now, that's know, a lot of patience to wait that It is. That same, well, same thing with roadrunners. I've always wanted to see a roadrunner nest. And for like a month, I kept seeing these roadrunners, and they were hunting, and they would be bringing back stuff, and they always headed, you know, in one direction. And I would try to follow them, and each time they got to a certain point, they would take a new direction. Well, one day the female slipped up. She didn't see me. She went straight down, and I said, I know where your nest is. And we got out, and we walked this, like, 20-yard stretch by 30, and we found the nest. You know, so a lot of it is initiative. It's waiting. It's paying attention. 
you don't have to feel like you need a bird blind and you got to sit somewhere for two, two hours or two days waiting for something. A lot of it, you just need to pay attention. That bobcat that I filmed, the second time I filmed it, it was behind someone's tent in a campground. Wow. I managed to corner it in a campground. They didn't know. Their kids were playing. Um, they were having fun. Some of it, people just aren't looking. You know, when I rode cruise, I looked down, I shouldn't say this, I looked down the road more than I look up. I'll drive off the road, you know, looking for stuff. It's knowing what to look for. A lot of people just, you're amazed how much people don't see stuff. And before I started looking for wildlife, I look back now and I wonder how much of that stuff I actually missed. I, I want to talk about sort of the direction that you're you're heading. So you've, you've done the Texas wild shooting and photography for, for several years. I know you've recently started your own production company. Um, you know, what, what do you see yourself doing for the next five years or so? Your footage has been used in a number of places. You know, yes. You've, you've participated in a number of documentaries. I mean, is, is this... My, my goal is to, um, whether it's footage, Ray and I, you know, continuing the bloodline of Texas Wild and finishing what, we, what I said I would finish, or if it's new stuff, my goal is to keep filming, to get paid to film, whether it's a little or a lot, and have my footage used. Um, I've been contracted here and there, and I'm, uh, that's a point of pride for me. The last time I went out on a gig, didn't get the shots I needed. That was about four months ago. And thinking about that still gives me anxiety. It makes me sick. I have to block it out of my mind. Down that lane, kind of going down that road, I start a lot of projects myself. I go out and I find something and I say, hey, I would like to do this. And they say, yes, you may. And then that leaves me with funding, grant writing, you know, all of that. And um, I'm doing that now with one project. And then there's other projects um, with people I've um, connected with, mainly through social media, where you can kind of throw your hat in the pile. You know, a lot of these places, these people I'm trying for, they started like I did long ago, freelance, and now they're contracting out with Discovery or Nat Geo. And that's where I'm trying to get. And so whether it's a camera, just operating camera, or if you want me to come out and try to do a full gig for you, I'm happy to do that. But where I would like to see myself in five years is whether it's freelance or working for a company filming. I just want to film. I want to make film. I don't mind editing it. I'm pretty outdoorsy. I'll go wherever. You know, I'm not picky. I just want to keep making film. The trick is to make enough money to where you can always be filming. The more time you spend out in the field, the more likely you are to see something. That's why I would disappear for months and not see my family or not be home, just live out of a sleeping bag. But the footage I got was spectacular. So the goal is to make money, make that money last as long as possible, to get footage, to finish a gig, to get another gig, to start side projects. You got to have as many things going as possible. And so you've you've been working in media, you've been working in, you know, wildlife and biology and, you know, up to this point those have been pretty male dominated industries, I guess. I'm told. Yes, I, I, I know agree. I, I know media has been and and filming. Yeah, is, I agree. Is that something that I mean, do you feel like it's getting better? Do you feel like you ever meet people who think, well, she's she's just a girl. She's she's not out camping or chasing wildlife I, around or anything like that? I agree, it's very dominated. I've always been told that. I've seen it firsthand. But when I was in group, introduced to it, whether it's media or film, I was introduced to these women who just blew you away. They made the boys cry. They ran 25 miles before 8 a.m. They bike, they hike. If they can fit through that hole, they will go in there. They'll grab anything, and they're so happy. And I was, 
I kind of experienced a little bit of it when I came in because I'm not high maintenance, but I do have a collection of designer handbags. I get my nails done every week. Um, I don't care if I'm going to be digging a porcupine out of a burrow or not a burrow, but out of a tree or, you know, crawling through the mud, I'm still going to get my nails done. Those are things I like because I don't wear sandals and hiking pants all the time. Walking into a place can be kind of intimidating and I had a little bit of that. I was told I didn't look the part. I kind of stepped it down. I used to wear high heels and dresses or high heels and you know, every day. And I kind of cut that out a little bit and I switched to boots. So that way, if I needed to, I could go straight out into the field. You ruin your nice boots, but hey, you get to go out in the field. And I think that was introduced to me. And as soon as I came up against that, I completely dismissed it. I I reject that judgment. I don't let it bother me. I don't wear like normal camping clothes. I wear um, Under Armour tights and all black in the field. That's what I feel comfortable in. And when I feel like I feel comfortable, my work is elevated. And so I do that. I think it is largely male dominated, but if you go in the field, if you work kind of some of the trapping projects I have, some of the men I worked with are just amazing. And then you meet, you'll hear them talk about a lady and they'll say, you need to meet Pam or you need to meet Nikki. And then I'll drive down to Austin and I'll meet this lady and she'll blow my mind away. And she's like, I've been doing this for like 35 years. And that's who I kind of aspire to be. So it is male dominated, but I think I think it's only as dominated as you allow it to be. And then, you know, just to close out, I want to talk about why you're based here in Amarillo still. I mean, given how much you travel, there are more centrally located parts of the state, you know, but but you still got a home base here. So why is that? I don't know. I always said I was going to leave Amarillo, not because I hate it, but, you know, bigger and better things. I didn't know where I was going to go. I don't have a plan. I just go, honestly, if it was left up to me, I would probably live out of a camping bag again or a sleeping bag. And I don't think that's, um, I don't know if you can always do that. You know, at some point I've got to grow up. I got to make a little bit more money. So that's when I started my business, you know, switching jobs, um, stepping into this new realm of freelance. Um, I gave up living on my own, moved back in with some people to kind of get going forward. And I don't really know where I would go. So I don't really see the point in leaving Amarillo. Are there opportunities to do what you do being based here, but like in New Mexico or in Colorado? I mean, do do you travel outside the state very I do. I do. And I want to do it more. Um, This would be a good place to be based if you were heading, you know, other places in the Southwest. Absolutely. And I want to do that. Um, I've just stayed here for the time being locally because this is where all my contacts are. I know I can get onto that ranch. I know I can get onto that property. I know I can film their bats. And so that's kind of where I've stayed. Um, I'm trying to get projects that push me outside of the realm. And some of those gigs, I'm hopefully will lead me to California, but I'm happy with Texas. I may film it to death. Uh, I probably should move on, but I go where I feel like I have the best chance of getting work and getting the shot. And so right now things are just keeping me in Texas and I'm happy going where the wind blows me. The Hey Amarillo podcast is brought to you by ROI Online, an internet marketing agency. Now, I'm a writer, and so I know just how challenging it can be to come up with a good story that sells. I can't imagine how hard that would be for a business owner or a marketing director who's got a million other things to do to try to come up with that kind of story. So what's so cool about ROI Online is that they are more than a marketing agency. They're, they're not just a business consultant. 
they are a company that will help you tell that story. They're your partner and your teammates. They're kind of like your ghostwriter, something else I know a lot about. They, they do the heavy lifting, but you and your business get all the credit. What's even better is that in addition to helping businesses like yours succeed by shaping their marketing, they'll also influence your company culture. So drop by for a chat or meet them for a happy hour and you'll discover their culture is contagious. Follow ROI on Instagram and Facebook, or you can learn more by checking them out at ROIonline.com. ROI Online, leading the modern marketing movement. Okay, we're back with Jesse's story. Jesse, this is the part of this show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you sort of a lightning round series of questions, and uh, your job is to answer those however you'd like, short or long, or you can refuse to speak if you want to, but that's, that doesn't make for a good podcast. <laughs> okay. All right. What's your favorite place to eat in Amarillo? Indian Oven. Been for like 10 years. Have you been to the new location since Absolutely. I was going out there um, when they were out there by the big Texan, okay. my best friend and I, so Indian Oven all the way. What does this area have too much of? Litter. I feel there's too much trash. Do you think it's worse in Amarillo than in other cities, or is it pretty standard for an urban area? Maybe pretty standard, I would feel. I feel that way. I just see more people here throwing stuff out the window than I have anywhere else, and I don't know why that irks me. I know it's going to end up in the landfill, but let's not throw it out the window when we're driving, please. Yeah, I, that bothers me too. I I get upset when I people I see people flick cigarette butts. I'm just like, there are receptacles made for those. I picked those Why? up. I picked those up and I went to Colorado and you can go anywhere in that state and it's hard to find a place where they don't have recycling and when there's just trash on the ground. We could step it up. Yeah, it's a cultural issue. It's is a cultural thing, yeah. What does this area not have enough of? Recycling, I guess we could answer that. We could answer that. I'll I, let you answer. I would like to say, um, going a different direction, kind of diversity in arts. We have a healthy art culture here. I think it's kind of like the underbelly of the city. A lot of people don't know about it. And those who do know about it are the same people who always know about it. So maybe, I don't know how to do this, but more more art people. We need more um, galleries. We need more places. Um, my boyfriend does stand-up comedy. It would be nice if we had more comedy clubs, groups, and places for them to, you know, express and do that art. When I was growing up here, we did poetry slams. Those have become very few and far, you know, so more of that. I think the last time I went to a poetry slam was when I was at WT and that was more than 20 years ago. So that it has been a long time for me. Um, how do you describe Amarillo to outsiders? Whether it's, I mean, people inside the state, people elsewhere in the U.S., how do you describe it? I describe it as a big, small town. Um, we're getting bigger, and one one day we may be huge, but we're always going to be the small town feel. We're friendly and nice to folks. I feel like it's a shoe that you fit well into. Um, it's got a little bit of everything you need. Our restaurants, we're getting good with having plenty of places to eat. I love that. And I feel like you can still get anything you want. It doesn't take but 30 minutes, 15 minutes to drive across town if you drive like I do. It's not a bad place at all. It's friendly and nice. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Okay. For coffee, I love to go to Cliffside. That became my new place on 45th. It's like a little drive-in, like a little stand. I love them. My favorite coffee shop, though, is the 806. I hear their coffee is phenomenal. I've never gotten any. I always go for the mimosas. Um, doesn't matter what time of day. If I go to 806, I'm going to need a mimosa. So I love the 806. And they, once again, they're one of the places you can go. They have great food. And they also do a lot of um, comedy events, art events, things like that. This is a fun question. When was the last time you ate at the Big Texan? 
about a year and a half ago. And I went because Donald Beard and several other guys were going to do, he's the superintendent of Caprock Canyon State Park, the steak challenge. Oh, I almost threw up watching them. And we all ate there. They all bought us, you know, we all got meals there. So that was about the last time I was there, about a year and a half ago. How did they do on the challenge? They did not do very good at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, you you spend a lot of time uh, filming, camping, hiking in Paladura Canyon. Um, I, I was wondering, as I figure you're somebody who gets sort of off the beaten path yes. in that area more than, than most people. Um, do you have a favorite part of the canyon? Is there a hidden place that, that's your go-to place? I don't really have a favorite part of the canyon. Um, if I go down there for just leisure, I jog the trails, and I haven't been doing that for a while. So, um, But normally what I did when I was in better shape is the Rock Gardens Trail goes up to the rim. I love that trail. That's my favorite trail. Too. Oh, good. Excellent. And then I do like the, I think it's called like the Rio Trail or something. I don't pay attention. I just run on these trails. Beyond that, I love to go backcountry. And um, last time I went, we just went eight hours, one direction, and came back. And, and I love that. And uh, last question, um, you know, you've filmed almost all the, the creatures in the area. Do you have one that's your favorite? That's hard to say. Favorite to film or just favorite in general? Favorite in general to see prairie dogs. Because you can get them in town, you can get them out of town. Um, you don't see them as much as you used to. So probably the prairie dogs. I get the feeling that... People don't always understand them or know enough about them to care about prairie dogs. I mean, it's a it's a population that used to be so widespread and they're declining. There's still some pockets in town, but yeah. they get driven out by development and all that stuff. And largely the stigma with prairie dogs starts with kind of um, how you were taught about prairie dogs. We all know some people say they're bad for um, grazing with cattle even though historically they did run with bison and bison were in the 30 million and um, bison didn't go around breaking legs. And studies have shown that where prairie dogs graze, cattle and bison prefer to eat there because, you know, they aerate the soil. They, you know, fresh growth from their clippings of the plants. Their um, burrows create an oasis. I mean, you have invertebrates, you have mammals, amphibians. There's also this, now that we're expanding Amarillo, we build out you know, in mm -hmm. Texas, we don't build up. And so we're, they get in the way, you know, we need to develop there, but there's this prairie dog town. And I agree, you can't save everything. We can't rehabilitate them. So that's a problem. For me, I always grew up with prairie dogs. Um, I enjoy seeing them. I've been to places um, in the Great Plains where you can drive for an hour. And as far as you can see on any side on that dirt road, there's just prairie dog colonies. They're my favorite local animal because summer or winter, you can always see them. And then uh, that concludes the eight straight questions. Um, I, I like to close every episode by asking my guests to endorse something related to the local area. Uh, that could be anything you want. So what would you want people to know about here? I'm going to go kind of with my roots of outdoorsy place. Um, Paladuro, people love Paladuro, and it's a wonderful place for the family. But what people don't know is we also have a... Um, another gym of a place, Cap Rock Canyon State Park. And um, it's if I can get away for more than 24 hours, I go there and I camp there. I've been going there since I was a kid. They have a lake, they have a play area, they have the bison, they have prairie dogs, they have trails, horse trails, wonderful place. Oh, and they have the bats, Clarity Tunnel. So I would encourage you to give Cap Rock Canyons 
as okay. a try. And like you said, it's just about a two hour drive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Kitty Texas. Um, a lot of people don't know where that is. Um, but it's a small um, town and um, you take a right at the first light. You keep, or sorry, left, you keep going and you'll start seeing your bison and there's the park. Okay. Jesse Story, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. And that concludes another episode of Hey Amarillo. I want to say thanks to Jesse Story for being this week's guest. You can find more about Jesse at jessiestory.net. That's J E S S I E. Uh, You can follow Texas Wild on Instagram and also on Facebook. And trust me, those are going to be good follows. So uh, if you're on those platforms, especially Instagram, check out her feed. If you're new to the show, a new episode of Hey Amarillo drops every Monday evening, and it's available just about everywhere you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. You can find more at heyamarillo.com and at heyamarillo on Twitter and Facebook. I want to say thanks to ROI Online for sponsoring the show, and thank you for listening. This is Jason Boyette. And I'll see you next week.